This is the Get Up Eight Podcast with your host, Eric Hodgson. I remember calling 911 that night and having my house fill with about six or seven police officers as they were trying to assess the situation. Zoe was in her bedroom. I had tried to revive her, and they were waiting for other paramedics and other people to arrive to get her to the hospital as soon as possible. And it was very quiet. I didn't hear very much coming from Zoe's room. I was in my bedroom. The police officers had me stay in my room while they were working on Zoe. And I also wanted to know what was going on. And so I kept on asking, is she breathing? Is she breathing? And they just kept on saying, I don't know. Well, before I knew it, uh, Zoe was out of the house into an ambulance and, and she was gone off to the hospital. And I was trying to figure out what was next. Uh, somebody had mentioned to me that they wanted to get me to the hospital as soon as possible, but I found myself kind of wandering around the house looking for my keys, looking for things. And I'm like, what am I? I just got to go get in the car. So there was a police officer waiting outside and, and I got in the front seat and I don't think I've ever done 60 miles an hour down a main street of any town uh, at 1130 at night, blowing through lights, uh, quiet, no siren. And I got to the hospital in about two and a half minutes, which was incredibly fast. Hey, everybody, this is Eric, and welcome back to the Get Up 8 podcast, where we unpack the challenges and struggles that come at us in life, and we find unique ways for you to build resilience, to not just survive your struggles, but thrive because of them. You know, that experience of having to not only lose a child, but have your local law enforcement resources at your home in your community available for when emergencies do come up or for any type of reason uh, is it's it's very powerful and i'd love to go a little deeper on what it means to be a citizen and also a police officer who uh, is is working with these communities and they see things every single day and yet they have to go home to their families. And I, my special guest today is uh, Garrett Tesla. Uh, Garrett is a Sergeant for a sheriff's office in Southern California. I met Garrett through a leadership program about a month and a half ago and we hit it off right away. And Garrett's a really, really good guy and he has his own podcast and we'll get to that towards the end of this podcast. But I I'd like to welcome Garrett to the podcast. Welcome brother. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. It's an honor to be here. Appreciate the time. Uh, anytime, man. Anytime. So, you know, uh, one of the things that really struck us, uh, struck me when we connected at this leadership conference in Florida uh, about a month and a half ago was that in your, <laughs> your approach to the citizens of this world, the, the people that you come into contact with is, is very open. And and I think that that's really important when trying to connect with with citizens. Uh, and and I, I, I'm using that term citizens is very technical. And I know it's probably more than just that. It's people because we're all people, right? You're a person. I'm a person. And we all have families. We all have things that come at us in life. And uh, but I'd love for you to kind of tell us a little bit about you know your your story and and uh, you know what led you to become an officer many years ago. Well, thanks, man. Um... 
you know, it's, for me, it was a long process. And here I am sitting at 40 years old and uh, 13 years now in law enforcement. And uh, as a kid or even into my early 20s, never, ever expected to be where I am, anywhere near law enforcement. I don't have law enforcement in my family. It's not a family tradition. It was something that was really something – this is cliche-ish, but it's absolutely true. It's something I was called to in my late 20s. Mm. Uh, I was working in the film and music industry uh, through from starting in high school with internships through college and then working in New York City and Los Angeles working for major uh, major record labels, uh, working with like Led Zeppelin and Kid Rock and Stone Temple oh, Pilots cool. and Matchbox 20, all these. It was cool, and it was a great job in, the early, in my early 20s, but it wasn't uh, – fulfilling to me uh, um something was lacking mm. right something was missing out of that environment just for me it's it's not for everybody but for me something was lacking and what i eventually learned was that i wasn't serving something uh other than myself i was doing mm. a lot of i was doing a very good job of serving my own interests and what i thought i wanted to accomplish but it was hollow and through a long process of going on ride-alongs and just talking to cops that I would interact with. I've always had great respect for what they could do. And I always thought, well, that that takes a level of courage that isn't me. I'm not mm -hmm. that person. I can't do those things because that's not how I'm, I'm wired. Um, you know, I, I remember standing outside on the Sunset Strip one night, uh, standing outside a bar at probably 2 in the morning, and hearing the sirens coming from the west and watching these two LAPD cars go in and out of traffic, running code, lights and siren, right? And they're coming down Sunset at what looked like Mach 10 to me, right, of course, and in a busy busy Saturday night, and they go by me, and they're weaving in and out of traffic, and they pass me, and I think, man, what does it take to be the guy or the girl that can do that? Because, mm. you know, what are they going towards? What kind of danger are they running to, or what what kind of night is the person that they're going to having, right? So It's someone's worst night of their life when you see something like that. And it was a long process of, of really thinking, well, I don't think that's me, but I, I, I have to at least try. And what I learned through that was, of course, 13 years later, I am capable of those things, but so is everybody. Mm. Um, there is nothing special about what we do that uh, is unique to a, a specific type of personality, right? Mm. I mean, it's type A, type B, whatever. Everybody's capable of, of putting themselves out there for other people. So, yeah, uh, uh, tested around, got hired and picked up um, and uh, was able to find a department that I was really able to embrace. And um, it's been a, a very interesting and wild ride uh, since day one. That's that's really amazing, man. And, and I love that story, too, because what you said kind of resonated with me is that, you know, you, you see these police officers, these two cars just racing down sunset, but they were running into danger. Mm -hmm. And you were kind of curious, more probably more curious than, than anything else about like what what where, what are they getting into? What what's going on? And it wasn't so much that you wanted to be a spectator, right? It's like you wanted to kind of be in in there with them, you know, mm -hmm. working mm -hmm. whatever it is they're working. And and so what was it about? I mean, I, I something tells me you're not a a danger seeker uh, necessarily or a daredevil, but what was it about that that resonated with you? As you were thinking about this, I mean, obviously it hit a chord in your heart and, mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, this is, this is much bigger than I am. Yeah. And so tell me about that. It, that's an interesting question uh, because I'm not, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. Uh, mm. I was never like, I never, I shot a gun once before the Academy. Uh, <laughs> a friend took me out to the woods and this is how idiotic it was. He, he brought his 
handgun with him to go shoot while we were camping. And I was so unprepared to shoot a gun that I actually stuck bullets in my ears as earplugs. Right. So that's, <laughs> that's my level of training with firearms and that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, so I didn't, that's really hardcore, ever, man. It is hardcore. I didn't actually ever like shoot a gun to the Academy. So I wasn't like that guy. I wasn't the want to drive fast, want to, you know, jump out of planes and helicopters, uh, kind of guy. I mean, eventually kind of became some of that, but at the time it was, it was like taking, like kind of being that, what is that, the movie, the matrix, right? You're presented with the red pill or the green pill. And I wanted to take, I wanted to see the full depth and breadth of the human experience. Mm. And I knew that I wasn't getting that as uh, a middle-class kid from Colorado who's now living a Hollywood lifestyle right. surrounded by rock stars. I was getting one aspect of that and mm-hmm. seeing a type of that. But I just always wanted to know in some sort of, probably in some sort of voyeuristic way, like what is the depth of the human experience? Mm-hmm. All the way you know, from the tragedy and the the pain and the struggles all the way up to the big adrenaline inducing things and it was uh another aspect of it for me was um this kind of sense of (laughs) of self-righteousness about not wanting to be afraid Mm. um you know i you live in los angeles long enough you're going to interact or see people interact with police and you're going to be the victim of a crime one way or another and seeing a lot of my neighbors become victims of crime and seeing how that affected them really kind of offended my sense of of what's right and wrong and right. and I thought well I seem to be able-bodied and capable and uh, you know I should be doing things about this and I didn't know exactly what it was a long process and you know really 9/11 was a big influence on me too because I watched what happened after that and mm-hmm. and watched uh how uh NYPD and and FBI the, and you know the cops went after the problem proactively um a lot of people joined uh, the fire departments after 9/11 and yep. the CIA and FBI. Yes, I and the military. Lots of you know, um, lots of people signed up for the military the next day. For me, I was drawn to the story that was being told about how the police were involved in that. Mm. It's very powerful when you're drawn into uh, this. You become. It, I say drawn into the collective, because um, that's more Matrix than anything else. But yeah. you know, when when you know, nine eleven happens, and uh, there was a lot of people I know that were drawn into service of some sort, mm-hmm. um, and for the better good. It's like the whole country came together to work. It's like, what can we do? What can I do? And that was that's that that's unheard of, and and we haven't seen it since nine eleven really. And and hopefully it doesn't take another disaster like that to to bring uh, you know bring people together again. But um, you know, it also showed the the power and the capacity of the human nature to mm-hmm. help each other. Absolutely. You know, and, and unfortunately, we've had a lot of incidences since yeah. then, smaller, thankfully. Right. But, you know, it's it's something I've experienced directly. You know, in uh, in January of this year, my area in uh, in Santa Barbara experienced a massive, they call it a debris flow, but that's not mm. even enough a a massive mud and rock slide that wiped out dozens of homes and killed 22 people and Mm. separated families and destroyed entire neighborhoods and out of that you know and i was there knee deep in the mud working uh recovery efforts and and rescue efforts uh in the days and days and then months after that Mm. but what came out of that for me was this idea and this isn't my term but this was a really powerful moment was 
you know, we're called first responders, right? The, the cops, fire, and EMS personnel, we're all first responders. But when citizens step up, they really become the second responders. And mm. what you saw at 9-11, what we saw in my neighborhoods uh, in the days and weeks after these events is when the citizens step up and become second responders and join us in the efforts to uh, make the community whole again, uh, to to find a path forward. That's when we, not only as first responders, but we as communities in a country become the most impactful. And, and that's where we can, that's where we thrive, right? Especially, mm. I think, uh, uh, um, I, I want to say just Americans, but that's not, that's not true at all because all of these communities, you see this happen. A tragedy happens. People have a, a paradigm reset about, you know, priorities and they step up. And it's really um, inspirational to me. And it's one of the things that I want to pursue on a day-to-day basis is finding ways to make the first and second responders work well together. Hmm. No, I, I, I think that's really important to say that, Garrett. Is, is, and I've always wondered about that, too, when it comes to, uh, you know, community policing to some, some degree, you know, where there's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the first responders doing their work and then, you know, a, a citizen or, or somebody, a, a homeowner or a neighbor sees something going on and, and they're drawn to jump in and help. So it, it, you're right. On a, on a smaller scale, things are happening, you know, since 9-11. But at the same time, there's still that sense of wanting to contribute uh, on a higher level and help out, especially if, you know, somebody's in, in trouble, you know, or in need. And I think a lot of people do actually want to help and some sometimes they're not sure whether they should or shouldn't and right. probably based on the departments whether whether they you know they don't want a citizen or somebody to get hurt if they you know come in and try to help them or whatever the situation but i see a lot of and i've seen a lot of recently where you know an officer is trying to make an arrest of some sort and a citizen will come in and <laughs> just tackle the person you know to right. help the officer right. out and, and of course you don't know what's going on you're just getting the context of what this video is but mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you also, uh, you know, you also, I, you also want to see that people will take that step and help when, when necessary. Mm-hmm. And, and I see that too, yeah. when it comes to Zoe's friends and, and other people here, you know, when we're navigating loss, we're, we're going through anything that's difficult in life. We all mm-hmm. need help. We all kind of need that, that second responder in our lives to kind of step in and, and, and I think that they do come to us. It, it follows the same paradigm, you know, whether, no matter what it is we deal with in life, you know, you have your role as an officer and, and yes, when something's, when, when, when the shit's hitting the fan, the second responders will show up in some form. The same thing with when you lose a loved one, you know, uh, in this case, second responders are family and friends that stick around. They hold space yep. for you, right? They, yeah. they, they, or they become a guide for you to help you get through it uh, as much as possible. And, and resources like that are spread out uh, in different ways, and not everybody uses the same type of resource to to navigate their way through that difficult situation. But um, no, I thought it was a really good point to make that about second responders. Let me let me add to that too, just to make sure people understand. So I, I'm not saying a second responder is someone who uh, throws on a gun belt and uh, right. straps on a pair of cuffs <laughs> and goes in and like you know becomes a vigilante. Right. The the, the role that happens there and what happened here was you know this was a mudslide that that took out homes and yes. there were boulders the size of homes that mm. came through these neighborhoods, right? Wow. Thousands of them. And, uh, people's living rooms were now like thigh deep in mud. Wow. 
and that dried and became cake. So that has to go somewhere, right? So mm-hmm. we had a group called like the Bucket Brigade. We're all citizens who all went to Home Depot and bought them out of buckets <laughs> and shovels and went around and helped people dig out their homes. Wow. That's something I can't do, mm. right, as a first responder. As a right. citizen, I can, and I can do that on my off time. But as a mm. first responder, I don't have that ability or capability because I have a different task and purpose. Right. But uh, when those second responders came in and, ste- and stepped in, what an impact they were able to have. Mm. And then I think a second responder is anyone who does anyone. It's anyone who does what they can. Mm-hmm. You know, so if that means coaching your kid's baseball team. Mm-hmm. And taking the moment and realizing that you're in a leadership position as the team leader, as the coach, to impact these young kids' lives, that's a second responder to mm. you, right? If you're uh, um, donating time to um, you know, a pet shelter or something like that, that's something that's impact or you're impassionate about, but it's outside of you and it's benefiting the community, that's a second responder right. role. All of those things. It doesn't have to be someone who's pro-law enforcement and just right. dedicated to what we do. It's yeah. it's those people who step up in any capacity in their community. Right. I think, and true, I think people step into it and when they see something going on, let's say there's an accident of some sort, like a car accident, whoever yeah. calls 911, that's a second responder, right? They're, sure. they're yeah. trying to help out or they're stopping on the side of the road to see if they can help out until the first responders get there. Right. Um, and and I'm again using that uh, term second responder as being just somebody that's a citizen that's helping out here. And you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. And thank you for that clarification. Um, you know this. I love the fact that that uh, you know the officers are. I love the fact that they're people too, right? And I say I love that because you know at the end of the day you come home and you have to hang up your belt. You've just had a very busy day. Maybe maybe it was a slow day, but maybe it was a very busy day for you. Maybe some stuff went down and you're and that's on your mind. And and what are some of the ways that you uh kind of decompress after a very stressful day? Because I'm imagining those those mudslides that you had to contend with for for days and weeks and months, you know, that you came home ex- just exhausted mentally and physically. Yeah. It's it's a constant challenge mm. uh for us. Uh, and, and anybody, uh, it's the purpose of the work I'm doing on my on my podcast, right? Is to explore how to do those things. Mm. Um, you know, cops. Half of all cops who have a have a heart attack have one before the age of 49. Wow. And um, yeah, it, it's and it and we carry a lot of that stress home with us. We have one of the highest suicide rates in the nation. Mm. We have a extremely high uh, divorce rate. Um, because we in, historically haven't been able to manage the, those stressors well, mm. you know, we 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 uh, we stuff it down. You know, we're we're constantly taught in the academy a command presence, which is this belief, and it's true, but it's this belief that if you look the part, act the part, then people will follow what you tell them to do, mm. right? So if someone if I've got a homicide suspect and I'm trying to get him into cuffs and he looks at me and thinks this guy knows what he's doing, I'm not going to mess with him. I'm much less likely to get in a confrontation with him than if he looks at me and goes, yeah, I could take him mm. right? in, in a physical confrontation. So right. we are constantly taught these things to not show emotion. We don't want to get involved in other people's uh, drama because we want to look and remain neutral. Mm-hmm. So the, the adverse effect of that, adverse effect of that, though, is that we never have managed to develop skills to off-gas that at the appropriate times. Mm. There, It always comes out as, or has historically come out as, you know, 
going to the bar after work with your squad mates and mm. telling stories and hanging out with other cops because they're the only ones who really understand what you go through and uh, you know, or sitting at home and just vegging out and kind of thousand yard stare in front of the TV all night long and right. not interacting with your kids. So we're getting better, and yeah. it's a it's a it's a movement now really to learn how to how to do these things. I think there's a a couple things that are. Uh, extremely important and very difficult, but you know, exercise and physical fitness is a big one. Having that uh, physical release for that mental stress—it's proven that, right. that that you know benefits anybody, uh, and that you just feel better as a result. And of course, the serotonin and dopamine dumps you get as a result. Uh, for me, I do a lot of time uh, journaling and meditation. Mm. Uh, meditation has helped me a lot in the job with developing an ability to pause between that stimulus and the response. Yeah. I don't always succeed, but <laughs> you know, you, you know, when someone's uh, yelling and screaming nasty things about you and your family and you know, where they think you should go, um, it, that that's been really helpful for kind of distancing myself from that and kind of seeing it as a, uh, almost like an out of body kind of way where I'm watching this interaction between two people, not necessarily myself. And it's right. easy to kind of create a little bit of a distance there. Um, journaling is another one, but you know, talking these things out is important, whether that's mm. with a spouse or whether it's with a, 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 a squad member or a teammate with a therapist, um, that we, we've got to get over this idea that cops shouldn't go to therapy. Mm. Um, you know, there's one of my favorite books on this topic, on the topic of emotional survival for law enforcement. That's the name of the book actually is Dr. Kevin Gilmartin, he was a uh, police officer in Arizona for like 25 years, went and got his PhD in psychology, and then he wrote a book about the experience of dealing with cops and stress. And he says that, you know, you go through the academy, you go through what typically is like a 10-step hiring process with polygraphs and psych mm -hmm. tests and physical tests. And he says, that's your warranty, that when you hit the street, you're good to go. That's your warranty, but your warranty's void after five years. Because mm. this corrosive drip of constant negativity right. and stress eventually erodes that. Right. And you're left with – and that's where you see, I think, a lot of the, the challenges or the, the, the controversial things that happen in law enforcement. You see that with people who um, have let that corrosion break through that barrier and they don't have a way to properly deal with it. You know, yeah. and, and I'm not perfect at all because I – struggle with these things and struggle with high stress events or, you know, you know, threats of danger or death. And you sometimes catch and realize that, okay, I probably didn't really deal with that at the time. Right. You know, uh, I didn't work through that and, uh, it's different for everybody, but the, just like exercise, I think talking to somebody is the most important thing and being able to have that, yeah have that conversation. It's tough though. But like for my example, for me personally, you know, I work a 12 hour shift I commute about 45 minutes. Mm. The minute I'm in the door, kids are, you know, kids are going and kids are running around and right. dinner's got to get made and di the kids got to get, you know, bathed and bathed and into bed. And, right. you know, it's 930 before I collapse on the, on the couch with my wife and mm. finally exhausted. And then it's time to go to bed because I got to be up at 4 a.m. to do it all over again. Right. So you got to find time and, and make a real effort, you know. No, that's a really good point. And I appreciate you telling us about those resources that have worked for you. Because um, I know a lot of people, even in life in general, we're always looking for resources to help us decompress from life as it is. And and some of those are very helpful without having to turn to 
um, a substance, you know, like alcohol yeah. or drugs or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, exercise and fitness is a really key piece of that, I think. It's like the, as they say, it's the most inexpensive form of, of uh, antidepressant that there is. Movement of some sort, getting out yeah. of your head, moving, you know, stressing your muscles in a very positive way, lifting, running, you know, cardio, whatever, yoga even, yeah. you know, yoga is great because it's also, it's it covers so much. You're breathing heavy, but you're also in a, you know, you're calm, you're breathing deeply, um, and you're sweating, you know, all that. Mm -hmm. But I think that's really great. Journaling is really important and talking, like you said, is really important. I've been, I've, I've seen the same therapist myself now for the last 12 years. And, uh, every time I go there, I feel like it's a little chiropractic adjustment for my brain, mm -hmm. you know, because we, if without those resources, somebody to talk to, somebody to kind of hear what your story, hear what's going on in your life and, mm -hmm. and just offer another perspective. It's not about, it's not about trying to, you know, wipe your memory or, or, you know, brainwash you or anything like that. It's really to help have somebody that listens, actively listening to you to help understand maybe that what you're feeling is, is it's okay mm -hmm. to be feeling that. And here's a way that we can help you kind of get through that so that it doesn't stay with you for over a, a long period of time and create this scar tissue. And you hit that five year mark and you're, you feel like mentally you're burned out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, when I, when I started the podcast and I just kind of decided to throw myself out there and, and see if others were dealing with some of these same issues, it came back in droves that others were experiencing this too. Mm, so right. we're all these little islands and guys especially aren't supposed to ask for help, right? That's right. What we're told. And, uh, and then cops especially aren't supposed to ask for help because we're supposed to, you know, be in control and we've got, you know, constant control of everything, which is not true. Right. Uh, and so you build up these walls and all of a sudden you find yourself that you've built a silo around yourself, mm -hmm. you know, and then, and then you got to figure out a way to get out of it. Yeah. And that I, it's interesting that you say that. Uh, I remember in 2007, I was going through a divorce and, uh, I built my silo mm -hmm. and I was okay with it, but I was comfortably uncomfortably in that place. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I remember that it took many, you know, months of, of talking with somebody else, whether it be friends, true friends, uh, family, uh, my therapist, um, even myself, right. To say, look, this, this is, this is really this isolation silo is really not a great mm -hmm. place to be in because it separates you from your nature, which is to be connected to other people. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, it's, I can understand there's the difficulty of, of making that connection. Like, okay, look, this is another human being here. Why are they acting this way? Why are they behaving this way? We don't know. We don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, all we can control is what we do, our actions. But, um, right. you know, if the, if the basis is there as a citizen, as a, uh, as a officer to make that connection with the person that you're, that you're, uh, working through whatever the situation is, um, there's a lot of power in that. You know, mm -hmm. and you have to be in that right mindset too. You know, so like you're saying, if you're not in that right mindset, if you're stressed out, if you haven't decompressed after a, a really tough day, you know, you might take that into the next day. And oh, yeah. and I think a lot of people are who are faced with stressful situations, we do that anyway. I do that. You know, I'm I'm still learning how to not you know go to bed worrying about something or stressed mm -hmm. out about something, um, and 
to employ some of these tools that you've given us here, you know, the talking, the journaling, the meditation, the exercise, all of that stuff, it, all of those are really useful tools to help kind of help smooth your your mind and, and relax your mind and calm your mind uh, so that you are ready for that next day mm-hmm. um, or that next situation that comes your way, you know, and and I can imagine that it's difficult for um you know, for you and for others who are walking into situations where, uh, you know, the adrenaline is up, it's a very tight situation, and uh, there has to be a way to kind of come down from that. And I, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what it's like, obviously, because I haven't been in, in, in your shoes. But what what are some of the ways that you found? I mean, was there a time when you were just just you felt like you were compressed a lot and was there a time that you felt like okay i just need to kind of shift my thinking about how i'm dealing with this did you hit that five-year mark at all where you felt burnt out or yeah sorry I, there's I a couple questions in there <laughs> <laughs> um i i've definitely hit that mark at different times you mm. know and i can tell for me you know we rotate shifts like most agencies so every four months i'm either on day shift or night shift mm. uh so I have a significant the, the the sleep issues around working a night shift have oh. a significant impact on me and yeah. about four or five weeks into a night shift I experience like I I can go down the list of chronic depression symptoms and check those all off mm. I don't have them when I'm on day shift but mm. when I'm on nights it's 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 something I know is coming wow and those things we talked about help uh, and doing some preventative work but. Yeah, and those things, and then and that kind of can spiral into a real burnout, you know, mm. or, or just a being tired about everything. Yeah, one of the challenges of like the adrenaline dumps you talk about is, you know, physiologically, I don't think I've ever had a, 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 a big adrenaline dump, but then you're exhausted afterwards. Yeah, right, right. And what's called hypervigilance with us is, you know, we're taught to be cynical. Mm. Um, cynicism is what keeps us alive. It's what we're trained in the academy. Right, and it's a double-edged sword because it's what keeps me alive on a car stop at midnight when I'm by myself and my backup's 10 minutes away mm-hmm. and I don't know who's in the car or what they've just done. You know, right. right. So um, that keeps me alive because it keeps me pr- protecting myself. Uh, but at the same time, you train that over and over and over again and you use that over and over and over again and it just starts again that cor- corrosive drip. So that cynicism and you mix that with adrenaline when we come off of a shift even though i'm now at home i'm experiencing a deep dive you know equal opposite reaction that di- that peak of adrenaline is now a complete crash mm. and what they're finding is that uh with cops especially where we go back to work back to home back to work mm. back to home going through this constant yeah. cycle where right. we're never in any sort of homeostasis more so than the military where you know they, they got nine months and they're kind of uh, amped and then they know they're going home, and then they're at home, and there's no threat there. Right. We're kind of constantly in and out, in and out. Mm. And that has become something that I'm aware of now, thankfully. Mm. I mean, I wasn't aware of it for a long time. Does that awareness help? It does because I can recognize some of the symptoms. Like I, I, like I talk about the depression symptoms before. Um, for a while, I didn't realize that's what it was. Mm. And then when I, when I started to learn more about sleep deprivation and the challenges of circadian rhythm and trying to sleep during the day, I was like, oh, okay. So now I know when I go to a night shift here in a couple of weeks, I'm expecting some of this stuff. 
I know that my diet needs to be on point. My exercise needs to be on point. Not that it will be because that's always a challenge. But, you know, understanding and having some self-awareness is really a key part of all that. I love that. No, thanks for sharing that, Garrett. That's really huge. Uh, you know, I, I love to talk a little bit about your podcast, The Squad Room. Um, I, I've listened to a few of the episodes recently and I've got them all queued up to listen to more. Um, but I love this focus of the squad room podcast. I'd love for you to kind of tell, tell us a little bit about what, what you're sharing on yours. So yeah, the podcast started, it's called the squad room and it started because I was struggling to find some answers in terms of, because I was, I was. At the time, I was at the at my heaviest. I was out of shape. I was exhausted. I had a young kid at home, and I was trying to figure out how to navigate through these health and fitness and mindset issues that we deal with. Because mm-hmm. I'd go into briefings and I'd hear the same questions being asked by some of my guys, and I thought, well, this is kind of silly, but you know, if I have a podcast, maybe I can get people to actually talk to me about these things. Mm-hmm. So that was the really impetus of it. And it was all about me and trying to find answers to optimize my own life and then sharing what nice. I was learning with people. So, and luckily it's been well received and, uh, sure enough, lots of cops and other first responders are gravitating to the show because it's answering or at least giving them ideas about how to address some of these things. Like how do you eat well at 2 AM when mm. there's no, when you don't yes. have a kitchen in your station yep. and you don't have a, you know, nothing's open except McDonald's. Right. You know, how do you deal with sleep deprivation and trying to get the best sleep you can on day shift? Or how do you deal with a mindset or what's the benefits of meditation? All those things. And those were all of interest to me. But my real passion and what I really see where I'm able to let to move forward in law enforcement is in leadership and in showing how first responders and second responders can work together. Mm. But also how first responders have an obligation, my belief that, you know, we have the biggest opportunity to affect the most amount of people right. in a positive way. Yes. You know, I go out on a shift and I might talk to between five and 30 people, you know, on a regular shift. Mm. And so each one of those contexts is an opportunity to, um, to, to give somebody something, you know, uh, it's an opportunity to give them a positive interaction with us or some leadership or some of those things that some empathy, uh, some compassion, all of those contacts, we have an opportunity to give someone uh, those things. And no one else, certainly for no one else in the government has this sort of impact that we do. Right. And other citizens don't have that kind of interaction with that many people in mm-hmm. a given day. Right? right. So I'm trying, I want to get cops to see the power of their position, not from the gun and the cuff right. standpoint, but the power of being able to lead others. Mm. So I use this idea of being the one. Uh, which is uh, a quote or it's a portion of a quote from uh, Heraclitus, you know, who was a Greek philosopher many, like many, many years ago, but around the time of Sparta and the Spartans and mm-hmm. this and, you know, and, and it was a, he was speaking about the military, uh, but I think it applies in any group, whether it's uh, second responders or first responders. Um, but he says, uh, and I, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm going to do my best, but out of, uh, out of a hundred men, 10 shouldn't even be there. For they are just targets. Uh, sorry, ten shouldn't even be there. Eighty are nothing more than targets. Nine are the real fighters, and we are lucky to have them, for they make the the battle. But the one, the one is a true warrior, and he will be the one to bring everybody back. Wow! So I, I love that quote. Yeah. And even though I I, I suffered through it there a little bit, <laughs> but. <laughs> 
But the idea that, it. you know, and I think this is true in my organization or any other organization, 10 people are really probably doing the hardcore work, 80 are there contributing, but not maximizing their input. But you can be the one, mm. you know, the one who brings everybody back. And that can be back from a, a, a stressful shift. Yeah. It can be back from a stressful board meeting. Mm. It can be back from a stressful interaction with your family. Right. It can be any of those things. And uh, in in any of those capacities, we all have the ability to to step up in and into that role. Yes. And some do. of us need um, some direction, but we all have that capacity. Yes. So my uh, my goal is to make every law enforcement officer feel like they are the one. Mm. That is awesome, man. I love that, and that is uh, I appreciate you doing that, Garrett. Um, I was in Southern California about six or seven months ago, and I was having lunch with a group of other people. And one of the gentlemen with us is a former, or sorry, a retired Green Beret. And uh, there were some officers in this restaurant having lunch. No one was talking to them. No one was interacting with them. And when they got up to leave, uh, my my friend, the retired Green Beret, said, "Hey, hey guys, I just want to thank you for your service." And it kind of caught them off guard, but one of the gentlemen, uh, one of the officers came over and it was, it was kind of funny at the same time. He said, you know what? I appreciate that. And, uh, he gave, uh, this retired green beret, one of a patch that he had and that's a patch that he's had for years. Hmm. He kind of wanted to return the favor of just acknowledging that, that we had all acknowledged him and their service. So I'd like to extend the same thing to you, Garrett, and thank you for your service as well. I, I better get a patch. I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> no, but uh, I just want to thank you for, you know, your service and actually putting this podcast together that you're doing the squad room for the benefit of not just the officers, but also the, the men and women that listen to it, the civilians and citizens that listen to it as well. Um, and I want to thank you so much for coming on to this podcast and sharing us, uh, sharing with us your story and those tips that you that you use to kind of help you get centered again after you've had one of those really rough times in life. So uh, thank you so much, man. And uh, what's the best way for people to uh, get in touch with you or to at least connect with you uh, about the podcast? Sure. Before I answer that, I want to I want to address the the if I can if you have a second yeah uh, the the thank you for your service um, those are really impactful for us and and I'll say this to you just like I often say in the field is you're worth it mm. so you know thank you we do this because we value what we are able to do for you mm. you know we we do see this as our contribution towards your ability to live a free uh, life in the pursuit of happiness, life, yes. liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? That is how we see what we do. We don't see this as our goal is to go out and give you a traffic ticket. Right. So when we do it from that mindset too, you're absolutely worth that service. So I, I'll, I'll say that. And then the best way to, to find out more about the show or to reach out to me is uh, the squadroom.net, all one word, or on Instagram, same, at the squadroom. Um, can, people can even email me, Garrett, two R's, two T's, at the squadroom.net. Shoot me an email. Uh, but they can learn about the show from the website there. Awesome. And I'll be sure and put that in the show notes. So Garrett, thank you again for coming on here and sharing this with us. And uh, I'd love to talk with you again some other time. My pleasure, man. I'd look forward to it. Thank you. 
thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Get Up Eight podcast. My name is Eric Hodgson, and I invite you to go to erichodgson.com where you can find great free resources to help you start thriving today. And don't forget to pick up your copy of A Sherpa Named Zoe, How to Walk Through Grief and Live with Intention.